I invite you at this time to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. We'll be considering verses 12 through 16 this evening. Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. Recently in Luke's gospel, we have seen these confrontations between the Pharisees and our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw that the Pharisees didn't like the feasting practices of our Lord and the company he uh, entertained. We also saw that the Pharisees didn't like Jesus' Sabbath observances. And now in our passage today, we're going to see Jesus laying the foundation of his church, calling from his disciples 12 to be apostles. So please pay careful attention, for this is God's holy word, Luke chapter 6, verses 12 through 16. In these days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this evening. Well, securing a strong and firm foundation is very, very important, both literally and metaphorically. For instance, if we think about this in a literal sense, the foundation of a building or a house is absolutely critical to the longevity of that structure. Or even to think on a, more, a much more uh, smaller scale, I don't know if you've ever played the game Jenga. I remember playing this game growing up. We have these, these blocks that are intersecting and they build this tower, and the point of the game is for each player to take out one of, these one, one, one of these blocks one by one. And if you take out one of the blocks on the foundation, there's a very, very high likelihood that the whole thing's going to tumble. The foundation is very, very important. Well, this is true on a metaphorical level as well. When you consider that the beginning of nations, or the beginning of organizations, or businesses, the founding members, the founding principles are very, very important to the success and longevity of that institution. Foundations are of critical importance. Well, in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20, the Apostle Paul compares the church to a building. And he says that the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of this building, with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And then we, as the post-apostolic church, that is, the church that exists after the death of the apostles, we make up the structure. So here in our passage, we see Jesus calling from his disciples 12 men to be apostles to be these messengers, to continue his mission after he leaves this earth bodily. Or, to put it another way, this passage is about Jesus laying the foundation of his church. 
Jesus, who calls himself the builder of the church, is here laying the foundation, the foundation of the new covenant church. So as we consider this main point this evening, I'd like us to briefly uh, consider two other, uh, two other points. First, we'll consider how Jesus builds this foundation, and then we will step back and reflect upon this foundation and see whether this foundation is weak or strong. So let's first consider how Jesus builds the foundation of the new covenant church. As I mentioned before we read this passage, in the context of Luke's gospel, we have considered these confrontations, these confrontations between the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, and Jesus over his feasting practices, over his Sabbath observances. And now, after these these confrontations, Jesus is seeking a place of solitude. He goes up to a mountain to pray to his Father. In fact, we read in this this passage that Jesus is praying all night to his Father. He's surely praying in part for what he is about to do the very next day. Lay the foundation of his church. As he selects 12 people, 12 disciples, to be apostles, to be the messengers who will continue his mission. Now, this theme of Jesus going off and finding a place of solitude and praying to his Father is a theme that we see throughout the Gospels. It's a reoccurring theme. And because it's a reoccurring theme, the temptation is for that to lose its significance. So I'd like to dwell a few moments on the significance of Jesus, the Son of God, praying. Jesus, the Son of God, believed that he needed to pray to his Father. Jesus, the Son of God, needed prayer. If that's the case, how much more so do we, as fallen, finite human beings? Now, of course, as Jesus is anticipating this momentous day that's ahead of him, he's not succumbing to anxiety or worry, at least not in a sinful sense. But for us, as we have big events before us, decisions or trying situations that invoke this anxiety and fear and worry within our hearts, so often we can forget to do the most important thing in those situations, which is to pray. In fact, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4, commenting on this theme, he says that we are to be anxious in nothing, but in everything, with prayer and supplication, We are to let our requests be made known to God. Now, of course, we can't control the the fear, the emotion of anxiety overwhelming our hearts and minds. But we can control what we do in those moments. In the the Apostle Paul's mind, it's as if he's saying, when that emotion of anxiety comes upon you, that's meant to signal, that's meant to trigger that it's time to pray. You know, there's this idea when it comes to building new habits. It's called habit stacking. So if you're wanting to build a new habit, you associate that new habit with an already existent habit in your life. So that when you're doing that, that habit that's already existent, that's automatic, it should trigger in your mind, it's time to do this new habit. 
You associate the new habit with the existing habit. That's sort of what I think the Apostle Paul wants us to do with his anxiety and worry. When anxiety comes upon your heart, that should signal to you, trigger to you, it's time to pray. It's time to pray. We are to habit stack, as it were, anxiety with prayer. The most important thing we can do in such moments. So brothers and sisters, is your first instinct as we encounter anxiety with looming decisions or trying situations ahead of us. It's our first instinct to pray. To confess that we are finite creatures dependent upon a sovereign heavenly father. If Jesus, son of God, needed prayer, how much more so do we? Well, Jesus is up all night praying, and as morning dawns, he summons his disciples up onto this mountain. Now, it's easy, I think a common misconception is to think that the disciples and the apostles were the same people, as if these are synonyms, and they're they're not. If you think about the meaning of of these terms, even, the word disciple literally means a, a student. In that time, there would be lots of disciples of various teachers or rabbis, and these disciples, these students, as it were, would be in a literal and metaphorical sense, at their feet, learning from the mouth of that teacher. So Jesus had lots of disciples. In fact, we will learn later on in Luke's gospel that he will send out 70 of them. But of this big group, he's only selecting a dozen, 12 to be apostles. And now, this word apostle literally means the sent out ones, or to be a messenger. Jesus is picking 12 men of this large group of disciples to be his sent out ones, to continue his mission of bringing the gospels to the ends of the earth. The prophet Isaiah prophesied about this Messiah to come and said that the Messiah to come was going to bring the gospel to the very ends of the earth. But when you finish reading the gospels, you recognize that Jesus hasn't done this. He's only brought the gospel to his own people, the Jews. That then leads us to the question, who's going to fulfill these these prophecies of bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth? The apostles, the messengers of our risen Lord will bring this gospel to the end of the world. And at the end of Acts, where's Paul? He's in Rome, the end of the known world at that time. These are the, the messengers, the sent out ones commissioned by our Lord himself. And the fact that Jesus selects 12 of these men is not coincidental. There's a lot of symbolism and meaning in the fact that he he chooses particularly 12 men. If you think back to the Old Testament, how many sons did Jacob have? Well, Jacob had 12 sons. And who is Jacob? Well, Jacob is later renamed Israel. Israel has... 12 sons, and the names of these 12 sons become the names for the 12 tribes of Israel. So in picking this number, Jesus is showing the rich connection between the old covenant people of God and this new covenant church, which is beginning here with these apostles. Furthermore, when you consider where did God enter into a covenant with Israel, well, in Exodus 24, we read that God called Moses up a mountain, Mount Sinai, 
and entered into this covenant with his, with his people. And where's Jesus here in this passage? He's on a mountain. Building this foundation, laying the foundation of his new covenant church. Again, showing this, this rich connection between the old covenant people of God and this new covenant church. This is one tree, as it were. And these 12 men, which Luke lists for us here in our, in our passage, this is a, a motley crew, not an impressive bunch, not, not a bunch that I think we would pick if it was up to us, especially to be the foundation of such an important institution as God's church. Now, I'm not going to go through every single one of, one of these men, but I will just highlight a few. You'll see that Luke begins with Simon Peter. Simon Peter's a fisherman. We saw a few weeks back our Lord call him as he was on the job as a fisherman. Throughout the Gospels, how is Peter characterized? Well, he's the one who's repeatedly speaking before he thinks. Peter, the one who reassures our Lord over and over again, I will never betray you. And then goes and betrays our Lord at his moment of greatest need. You also have James and John, also fishermen, Jesus' cousins. And these two are, are described elsewhere as the sons of thunder, the sons of, of Zebedee. You may ask, well, why the sons of thunder? Well, in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is rejected at Samaritan village. And what's James and John's response? Oh, Jesus, let's call down fire upon this village. How dare they treat us like that? Right, they're rash. Sons of thunder. And then Matthew, also known as Levi the tax collector, this notorious tax collector, a worker of the Roman state. Thomas, doubting Thomas. Probably all know that episode of, of Thomas disbelieving our Lord as he appeared after his resurrection. Simon the Zealot, a political enthusiast who may have been a part of this, this group, this uh, that was seeking to advocate for an armed rebellion against the Roman Empire. As the ancient historian Josephus uh, mentions, this group that Simon may have been a part of was part of the reasons why there was such tension between the Jews and the Romans. It's interesting to think about how Jesus calls a, worker of, a former worker of the state in Matthew and then a political radical and Someone who's zealously opposed to the state in Simon and brings these, these two people together. And lastly, we read Judas Iscariot, the infamous betrayer of our Lord, which we read about at the end of the gospel. Again, not an impressive bunch. Not an impressive bunch at all. But as one commentator said, it's, these individuals who will go on to turn the world upside down to lead to a church which, as I mentioned in the prayer today, is over two billion people, starting with the foundation of these men. I'd like to dwell a few more moments on the fact that Jesus chose. Jesus chose these men. He didn't call for volunteers. He didn't call for a democratic election. He didn't give them, I mean, these are his disciples. He didn't give them a test and say, okay, the, the ones who score the highest on, on this test, I mean, your, your disciples, you should be listening to what I'm saying. You 12 are going to be my disciples. No, 
He chooses. He spends a night praying before his father, and he chooses these 12 men. He chooses men that are completely unworthy, unlovely of this calling. This is not only true for the foundation of the church, it's also true for the structure of the church, a structure of which we belong to. Jesus is always the one who seeks us, who chooses us, chooses those who are completely unworthy of such a calling. Oftentimes, the logic of Scripture completely cuts against the grain of the logic of this world. For instance, think about how relationships work in this world. Ordinarily, they're based on mutual attraction. Think about why you married your spouse. I sure hope that you married your spouse because you saw at least something in them that's attractive. Or think about friends, people who you make sacrifices to spend time with. Maybe even travel great distances to see. It's because you may share similar interests. You have mutual hobbies, or you see characteristics in them that sharpen you, that you aspire to. Our human relationships are ordinarily based on unmutual attraction. But this is not at all how our relationship with the Lord works. The Lord doesn't just look out upon the world and say, I'm going to choose those who have their lives together, who have something to offer me, who are attractive, at least in some sense. No, he goes after those who are completely unworthy, unattractive, unlovely, nothing in them that would make them worthy of such a calling, and he pursues them. So this evening, Jesus is calling you, calling you not because you are unworthy in yourself. Rather, he's calling you knowing full well who you are as a, a wretched sinner, someone who is completely and wholly unworthy of him, yet he's calling you nonetheless. What a comfort. What good news this is. That Jesus truly is the one who builds not just the foundation of the church, but his entire church as he seeks after sinners like you and me. Well, this leads us to the inevitable question of whether this foundation that Jesus builds here in this chapter as he calls 12 men on this mountain. Is this foundation weak or is it strong? Is this foundation weak or strong? This is an important question. As I mentioned in the introduction, foundations, whether literally or metaphorically, are absolutely vital to the strength of an institution. So this is a very important question. Is this foundation a weak or a strong foundation? Well, the answer is both. The answer is both. I don't think I need to spend much more time belaboring the point that there is an apparent weakness to these 12 men who make up the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. These are weak, unimpressive individuals, uneducated, common, rash, unfaithful, prone to doubt, thick-headed, not an impressive bunch. The Jews during that time would have scoffed. The Greeks would have laughed. Are you kidding me? 
You think you're going to gain converts with a foundation made up of these guys? In the Greco-Roman world, the most prized after skills were the skills to speak elegantly and well, so rhetoric, as well as the ability to write with style and beauty and goodness. These were the most prized after skills in the ancient world. And the early church fathers, so the, some of the early church fathers who lived a couple centuries after the death of the apostles, they oftentimes were embarrassed of the New Testament books, books that were written largely by these men, because they didn't conform to the, the style, this appearance of wisdom that would impress the Greek poets and philosophers. Rather, you read, apart from maybe the book of Hebrews, you read these these books in the original Greek language, and they're simple, they're plain. They're not, they don't conform to the, the style, the poetic style of the so-called cultural elites of that day. They had apparent weakness to them. But that's not the end of the story. When you consider the lives of these men, what is the decisive changing point, turning point, in their lives, even just from the New Testament accounts. Acts chapter 2, Pentecost. What happens at Pentecost? The Spirit of God comes down upon these weak individuals. And God's power is manifested in these weak vessels. So yes, this foundation is weak, but it's intentionally weak. So that God can demonstrate his power, his supernatural power, through these weak vessels, using their weaknesses, so that at the end of the day, he would receive all the glory. When you read the Gospels, when you read Acts, you don't come away thinking that these apostles are somehow these extraordinary individuals, super saints as it were especially when you read the Gospels. No, it leaves you praising our God who does extraordinary things through weak vessels. And guess what? God continues to call weak people so that he can demonstrate his power in their lives. God continues to call weak people and even use the weaknesses of weak people to build up his people and his church. You think of the Apostle Paul, someone who said he did not speak well. He was ridiculed by people in the culture in that day. But look how God used even his, his weakness in speaking to do incredible things. So God is wanting to use even your weaknesses to build up his people. So oftentimes we don't do things that could encourage one another because we, we think we're weak. We think we have weaknesses. It's not going to benefit anybody. But God wants to use you in the midst of those weaknesses to build up his people. In fact, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. Goes on to say, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. This idea, this paradigm of God calling weak people so he can manifest his power in their lives can only be understood once we embrace the logic of the cross. As I mentioned already, the logic of the cross cuts against the grain of the logic of this world. For instance, think about God's power, God's wisdom, God's blessing. Think about defining those terms. If you define those terms in a a way using the, the logic of this world, it's probably going to end up sounding like something that would conform to wealthy Western society. But how does the logic of the cross define these terms? Well, God's power is manifested in the weakness of a cursed death, death on a cross. God's wisdom, the wisdom of God, is demonstrated in the sending of the God-man to this earth to suffer and die. See why the Greeks scoffed at that. That's wisdom. God's blessing is found in suffering, suffering to the point of death. Therefore, it shouldn't surprise us that God calls and uses weak vessels to accomplish his purpose, to manifest his power so that he would receive all the glory. It makes complete sense when you understand the logic of the cross. So brothers and sisters, when we recognize our own weaknesses, when we feel weak, we are at sort of a, a crossroads. We can either allow this weakness to lead us to pride, a pride that can look like trying to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps, or a pride that leads to a a despair. We can allow our weakness to lead us to seek to self-medicate in destructive ways. Or we can allow our weakness to humble us, allow our weakness to eradicate that false sense of autonomy that we so easily revert back to and embrace our weakness as God, God's ordained means of manifesting to us his power, his wisdom, and his blessing. So, beloved in the Lord, Jesus, Jesus is the one who builds his church and lays the foundation of that church. And yes, according to one perspective, it is weak. But because it's weak, It's fertile soil for God to do miraculous things. 